Um, so we're going to be going over Luke 16 tonight, and I'm going to go ahead and just start us out in prayer, and then we can get started. Father, thank you so much um, just for your goodness and your greatness. Lord, I thank you for who you are, that you are a Lord that we can trust in, God, in that. You have provided your word for us just to guide us and instruct us um, in the way in which we should go. Lord, I pray just for tonight that you would just open our hearts, God, just to truly evaluate where we are at with you, God, whether we know you or not. Lord, I pray that you would, um, yeah, just teach us your truth through, through your word, God, and that you would be honored through tonight as well, Lord. Thank you for this opportunity. Thank you for how you just continually provide for us, God, and thank you just for um, allowing us the opportunity to gather here together tonight. Lord, we Lift up this time and ask all these things in your name. Amen. Okay, so um, if you guys, yeah, if you're not there, go to Luke 16. Um, so just a little bit of historical context. So the book of Luke, as we know, was written by Luke, who was known as the physician. So this book was most likely written before Acts, sometime around um, 80, 60, or 61. So in this book, Luke gives an ordered account of the events of Jesus' life. And like most of his writing, he gives details that help us to identify a lot of the historical um, details of this time. So this evening we'll be looking at Luke 16, 19 through 31. And this is the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. So Luke's, or chapter 16 of Luke starts out with the parable of the dishonest manager. And in this parable, Jesus emphasizes to the Pharisees that they cannot love both God and money. So the Pharisees were the religious, religious leaders of Israel and considered themselves blessed by the Lord. The Pharisees believed and taught that devotion to money and God were completely compatible. They saw nothing wrong with that. They believed the more money you had, the more you were blessed by God. With that as background knowledge, let's go ahead and read Luke 16, 19 through 31. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So, as we read in Luke 13, 24, it says, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. 
So did you guys know that today in America, I don't know how accurate the statistic is, but I found um, that 90% of Americans say they believe in God and 85% say they believe in Jesus. And I was just thinking of what Levi said, how we, you know, in America, we are known as this Christian nation, but obviously it's a lot of intellectual belief, and as we know, intellectual belief doesn't save. So John MacArthur once stated, hell is full of people who went there unintentionally from their perspective. Listen, guys, warning people of the reality of hell who are under the false impression that they will end up in heaven is the most loving, compassionate, and gracious thing we can do. And I know often, especially as believers, we become overcome by fear of man. And um, like Levi was talking, we're not, we're not bold to preach the gospel, but we ought to be. Um, so no matter how hard we strive or labor, we can never merit heaven or save ourselves. I just want to start out with that as background knowledge. Um, as you guys know, Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 states, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. So as we dig into this parable, remember, this is a story about a man who was shocked to find himself in hell. So in verse 19, let's go ahead and look there. Um, so as we know, the Pharisees would have viewed the rich man in this story as blessed by God, and the poor man in this story despised by God. However, this is clearly incorrect doctrine, for we read in James 5, 1 through 3a. And this is when James is referring to and condemning those who, like the Pharisees, their real God is money. It says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. And we also read in James 5, 5, you have lived on the earth in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. So as we see, the rich man in this is the main character in this parable, and he gives us the only testimony from hell in the entire Bible. So let's look at the life of this man. Verse 19, it says, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen. So we see this man, he was extravagantly rich, and everyone would have assumed that God had abundantly blessed his life. This man was clothed in purple and fine linen. So in those days, purple was a color that symbolized royalty, nobility, and wealth. The fine linen garment itself was made out of the highest thread count of wool, and it was a strenuous, laborious process to create this extravagant garment. It was very rare for people in this day to, have, to own one of these fine linen garments, but this man was clothed in these every day. So you guys can just imagine um, his wealth. So first, this wool, it was placed into a basin, and then it was mixed in with clay to produce a blazing, brilliant, shining white garment. So after they did this, um, they'd have to go to an island on the northern coast of Israel to collect this purple dye, and it actually came from a shellfish called a murex. Um, so as you guys can see, this was an intense process. They had to go collect the shellfish, come back um, after they had already cleaned all this wool up, and then dye it. Um, it also says in verse 19, this man feasted sumptuously every day. This guy, um, I guess if you guys can just get this picture of your head of just this table full of an immense amount of food, like we think of multiple feasts that we read about in scripture. This is how this man lived every single day. So this man was a man of extreme riches, extreme self-indulgence, self and he lived a very lavish lifestyle. So in contrast, let's look at Lazarus. Um, and this man is described in verses 20 through 21. So we read, and at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores. 
So the Greek word used in verse 20 that says laid, this doesn't just mean to simply set down on the ground. It means to throw or to be thrown down. So this was a poor man who was thrown down at the gate um, of, this, of this rich man. And he was there for the sole purpose of being seen by the rich man so that he could just have his basic needs of survival met. So we also see that this was, it says he was a poor man. So it's interesting to note that this beggar was the only character in Jesus' parable that was given a real name. So his name is Lazarus, um, which interesting to note, it's the Greek form of the Hebrew name Eleazar, which means whom the Lord saved. Um, so some believe this parable isn't actually a parable or a story, but they believe it's a real historical account due to the fact that he was named, um, and this is the only beggar in scripture named. However, regardless of whether it is a story or a true account, it's important that we understand what Jesus is trying to show us here and the lesson that he's teaching. So it's also interesting to note that the Greek word used to describe this poor man in verse 20 means extreme poverty. Um, so this man had, had nothing to offer. He was covered with open, oozing lesions and was in excruciating pain. The word to describe the sores in this verse is the Hebrew equivalent of the boils described in Exodus 9 that plagued the Egyptians. And the sores that Satan struck Job with from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head described in Job 2.7. So if you guys remember in Job, these lesions were so painful that Job went to the ash heap outside the city where the lepers would go and scraped at his sores with a broken piece of pottery just trying to gain some sort of relief. Um, so you guys can just imagine this picture of this poor man laid at this gate with nothing to offer, more than likely paralyzed. Um, he was thrown down and having nothing to offer, but trying to find some sort of relief just from these lesions that were consuming him. So not only was this man an outcast to society, but he also... Um, would have appeared as an abomination to the Pharisees. They would have seen this man as proof of divine disfavor and despised by God. So up until this point, we have this rich man who appeared to the Pharisees as blessed by God, this man of extreme wealth, and we have this poor man who had, had nothing to offer, and yeah, he would have been seen as an abomination to the Lord. So let's go ahead and look at verse 21. It says that this man desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. So during this time in history, guests actually used pieces of bread to clean their hands with. So like we use napkins today, they would take stale pieces of bread and throw them on the floor for the dogs to come after. And as you guys know, these dogs, they weren't the cute, friendly puppies we have today. <laughs> these were scavengers and mongrels that would roam the city and clean up all the garbage. Um, so just imagine this poor man named Lazarus, he's trying to fight off these ravenous dogs just to gain a piece of stale bread that fell from the rich man's table. So now up until this point, the drastic differences in the lives of the rich man and the poor man are described. So we see once again, the rich man, life of extravagance, while the poor man, life of misery. So to the Pharisees, the rich man would have been seen as the hero of this story, the one blessed by God and sure to go to heaven. What Jesus says next in verses 22 through 23 would have absolutely shocked the Pharisees. So in 22 through 23, we see in these verses, it says, The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. So this is the only time in scripture that the phrase Abraham's side is explicitly used. And we hear about it in other verses. Um, it talks about being carried or by, sorry, 
dining with, by Abraham, but we don't see the explicit phrase Abraham's side. So this is just um, a way to say he is taken to heaven. It's interesting to see that, that Jesus, is, Jesus uses such language to really capture the Pharisaical way of thinking. So the Pharisees would have very well known who Abraham was. After all, he was the most elevated person who ever lived and was the father of the Jewish race. The Pharisees knew that close to the host is the seat of honor. And so for Jesus to say that Lazarus, this poor man, was carried by the angels to Abraham's side would have been a complete shock to them. So in contrast, we see the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. So not only was this man in Hades, in a place of endless torment, agony, separation, with no hope and no relief, but he also had a full awareness of where he was, and he was surprised to be there. This man thought, oh, I have my riches, I have my wealth, I'm blessed by God, I'm going to go to heaven. Um, but he wasn't. He was in a place of eternal, eternal punishment described in Matthew 25, 46, a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth described in Matthew 24, 51, 25, 30, and Luke 13, 28. A place where it's stated in Mark 9, 48, it says, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. This man was in a place of eternal torment and punishment, and there is no relief from guilt or agony, and there's no second chance to repent and believe. Can you imagine the shock and surprise of the rich man at this point? So now remember, Jesus is saying that the most humiliated man on the face of this earth is the most honored man in heaven. And this is not because of his works or anything that he did, but because the Lord helped him, because he was a believer, and because he put his trust in the Lord. So verse 24, we see the rich man calling out, he says, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. So the reason this man was saying Father Abraham was because he was pleading as a Jew. He knew his lineage was from Abraham, and he used that as an argument against Jesus to validate his supposed legitimacy before God. Next, the rich man says, yeah, send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in anguish in this flame. So notice that the rich man, he still has no interest in God or Christ. All he wants is for Lazarus to once again serve him. The merciless one now wants mercy and he wants it at the hands to whom he was merciless. Um, John MacArthur had a quote, he said, hell is not remedial. So in other words, guys, hell doesn't make people repentant of their sin. Um, it doesn't make them have an interest in God. As stated in Revelation 22:11. Let the evildoers still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. So the, the flames of hell don't atone for sin or purge hardened sinners from their depravity or need for Christ. All this rich man wanted was a bit of relief from the eternal torment and agony he was facing. So in hell, guys, guilt never goes away. It will never be relieved. The conscience is ever accusing and never relents. It's never silent. And it's evident to see in these verses that Lazarus, he's being comforted in the presence of God. And the rich man is in agony. He's in a fire that burns forever but never consumes. And then moving on, in verse 25, um, Abraham says, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. So when he's saying child in verse 25, this is meant in a racial sense. Um, it's clear that the rich man is not a true child of God. So the rich man was a descendant of Abraham. 
And that is why he is referred to as child here. So notice that although the rich man received good things on earth, he was not in the presence of God. This would have completely disrupted the view that the Pharisees held to. And they said, that said, the more money or wealth you have, the more you are blessed by God. And I see that so much today in our culture, just as we um, hear about the health and wealth gospel. The more, you know, the more you have, the more you are blessed by God, but clearly incorrect. Um, verse 26, we read, And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. So this verse in the original language literally reads, There has been fixed and stands firmly and permanently a great chasm in order that those who wish to come over from here to you may not be able and that none may cross over from there to us. So imagine someone trying to jump across the Grand Canyon. I don't know how many of you guys have been there, <laughs> um, but just trying to think this extravagant canyon, no matter how hard you try, you could never jump across this great distance. You couldn't go from one side to the other. So this is a very finite picture of what is being stated in this text when Abraham is referring to a chasm, or in other words, a gap between heaven and hell. So this is how it is and will never change. No one in hell will ever go to heaven. A chasm or a gap is there for the very purpose of keeping the tormented in the place of torment and the blessed in the place of blessing. So verse 27 through 28 we read in verse 27, he says, and this is the rich man talking, and he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. So he's referring to Lazarus here. This rich man is pleading, send Lazarus to my father's house. He's begging Abraham to send him to warn his five brothers so that, so that they also wouldn't come into this place of torment known as hell. It's interesting to think about the fact that these brothers knew who Lazarus was. This was a man they had seen on a daily basis, just laying helplessly at the rich man's gate. However, they just ignored him, just like the priest and Levite of Luke 10, who saw a man stripped and beaten on our road to Jericho and just walked right by him, pretending like he wasn't there. So then in verse 29, Abraham argues back, and he says, But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. So the when he's saying they have Moses and the prophets, he's speaking and saying they have the Old Testament. The Old Testament, in other words, they have the scriptures. So we see once again, verse 30, the rich man argues back and says, If I or my brothers had a sufficient sign, then I wouldn't be here and they wouldn't be here. So the Pharisees always said, Show us a sign. And they always you know, argued, we need more than we have. And, and so often, once again, in today's culture, we see that, that we often hear people argue, well, God's word isn't enough. I need a sign. I need to see something from heaven. I need that feeling. Um, but however we see throughout scripture, signs don't save people. Um, for example, as stated in Luke eleven fifteen through 16, and this is right after Jesus had cast out a demon from a mute man, it says, but some of them said, he cast out demons by Belzebel, the prince of demons, while others to test him kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. These individuals had seen Jesus do countless miracles. They saw them take a demon out of a mute man. However, it wasn't enough. Another example is in John 11, and I just want to turn there quickly as we finish up. <clears throat> 
So in John 11, this is where Jesus raises Lazarus, not the Lazarus in this parable, but Lazarus, the brother of Martha and Mary, from the dead. And this is a few months after the scene in Luke 16. So however, right after this miracle, it says in John 11, 45 through 53. I'm just going to read that real quick. It says, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he had did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. So notice that there was no salvation among the Pharisees. All they could think about was how fast they could kill the man who raised the dead, because they were going to lose their position in society. So as you guys can see, um, just through these couple examples in Scripture, um, it's not the miracles in, in raising, even how um, Lazarus was arguing to raise, to ra or sorry, the rich man was arguing to raise Lazarus from the dead and send him to his five brothers. Um, he's just arguing back and saying, no, we need more, we need more, the word is, is not sufficient. Um, so let's go ahead and turn back to Luke 16 as we finish up. Verse 30, we see, it says, And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. It's interesting to note that this rich man, he was familiar with what repentance was, and he was familiar with Moses and the prophets. So in other words, he had an intellectual belief of what the scriptures were. He had an intellectual belief of what repentance was. And this made him a believer in sin. It makes him a believer in the law, which makes him a believer in righteousness, which makes him a believer in God. So he, this man was very religious. He knew about God. However, it was all intellectual belief. In verse 31, we read, He said to them, in other words, Abraham said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So what is Abraham saying here? He is saying that scripture is sufficient to save wretched sinners. We read in Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. We also read in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So guys, the word of God is sufficient to show people their depravity and need for a savior. You know, so often um, as believers, we make excuses. Oh, I can't evangelize. I don't have all these cool gimmicks or I'm not a rock star. Or, I, don't, I can't, you know, give this big concert. Guys, all we have to do is, is know the Bible, know verses, and to be able to point people to Christ. Because it's not us who saves people. It's the word of God um, that convicts them of their sin and shows them their need for Christ. So the living word of God does save, and it's sufficient. The only way to get to heaven is through listening and responding to the way of salvation presented in Scripture. 
So as far as application goes, um, John MacArthur once said, I have this quote I want to read with you, to you guys, no one will ever cease to exist. No one will ever cease to be. All who have ever been born into this world will live forever, either in heaven or hell, nowhere else. Upon death, the eternal soul of every person either enters heaven, the presence of God, or hell, out of the presence of God. And I just want you guys to think about that. I'm going to read it one more time. And no one will ever cease to exist. No one will ever cease to be. All who have ever been born into this world will live forever, either in heaven or hell, nowhere else. Upon death, the eternal soul of every person either enters heaven into the presence of God or hell out of the presence of God. So I ask you guys just to truly evaluate your lives and your hearts. Where are you at today? Um, if you don't know Christ and you're not a believer and you're trusting in your own works to get to heaven, like the rich man presented here in Luke 16, you need to repent and believe. So no matter how hard we strive our labor, we can never merit heaven or save ourselves. Um, I stated Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 earlier. Yeah, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So remember, guys, this rich man, he knew about God. He knew about repentance. Intellectual belief doesn't save. Solely knowing about God's word or hearing it every Sunday in church and knowing about Jesus isn't enough. Romans 10, 9 through 10 states, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So I challenge you to really evaluate your life. Do you know Christ? Do you have a personal relationship with him? And have you repented of your sin and trusted in him as your Lord and your Savior? I pray that you'll think seriously about these things. This isn't just a, a matter to kind of, oh, throw it off. Um, it's an eternal issue. Um, yeah, just like that quote said, we'll, we have two choices. No one will ever just cease to exist. It's, it's heaven or hell, and those are our two choices. Um, so if you have questions about the gospel, what it means to know Christ, definitely feel free um, to talk with Brooke, Trina, Michelle, Sarah, um, Callie, any of these gals pretty much in this room, um, Matt or Tanner or me, um, yeah, we're definitely open to answering questions. Um, and so now I do recognize some of you do have a genuine relationship with the Lord. You do know Christ is your Lord and Savior, and um, you have trusted in him. And so as believers, we're called to evangelize. And I know, especially, I feel like as women in particular, we really struggle with this. We always use the excuse, we'll build relationships first, and then we'll share the gospel. But often we don't. <laughs> um, so this passage, I know for me especially, it causes a deep soberness to your soul when you think of this rich man who, who was surprised to find himself in hell and how so often we have um, people in our own lives who, who think they're going to heaven, you know? They say, oh, I grew up in church on Sunday. Oh, I, I know about Jesus. And, and that's what they're trusting in. And truly, and that's just their own works that are, that are filthy rags before the Lord. Um, there's no way we can work our way. We are called, um, yeah, to share the truth with, with these individuals. Yeah, and so it does, it's a very sobering thing um, when you realize people and think about people in your own life who are heading for the place that Jesus describes as hell. So there's no other way to keep people from hell to than to expose them to the saving message presented in God's word, and God's word is sufficient. So what it means to be a Christian is to be an evangel. In other words, to evangelize and to be an evangelical. 
So that is to proclaim the message, the gospel that we believe that's presented all throughout Scripture. We have a great commission stated in Matthew 28, 19, which reads, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So we are called to go into all the world and to preach the gospel to every creature, and we can't avoid that as believers. We're called to take the message of salvation to the world and the gospel of goodness to everyone on the planet in every generation, um, all over America, out of the country, wherever we might be. Um, but it's as we go. So in our daily lives, we are called um, to do this so that these people, they might be rescued from sin and death and judgment and eternal hell. So I challenge us all, um, are we sharing the gospel with our unsaved family members, with our friends, with our coworkers? Remember, warning people of the reality of hell who are under the false impression that they will end up in heaven is the most loving, compassionate, and gracious thing that we can do as believers. So I pray that we wouldn't let fear of man overcome us, especially when opportunities arise. Um, yeah, with family members, with, with coworkers, or whoever. So that's all I have. Um, there's a couple reflection questions on the back. I think there's four of them or so. Um, but let me go ahead and close us in prayer, and then we can all think about those things. Father, thank you for your word. God, I thank you for this parable um, of the rich man and Lazarus, God, and, and just showing us, Father, that our works do not save, Lord. Even if we are blessed on this earth with riches and wealth and nobility, Father, those things will not save God, I thank you that you have made a way for salvation, that we can know you um, as our Lord and Savior, Father, and that we can look forward um, to spending eternity with you, God, if we do know you. And, and Lord, I pray just that you would convict us of sin in our heart, Lord. Um, I pray that you would rid of fear of man in our hearts and that we would be bold to preach the gospel to um, those in our lives who don't know you. Father, those especially who are under the false impression, like this rich man was, that, that they're going to heaven. God, help us to um, trust in your word, the sufficiency of your word, that it is the power to save God. It's nothing we do on our own accord, but it is all because of you. Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Lord, may you just use it to convict our hearts and to show us um, sin in our lives, or, or if we don't know you, God, I pray for those who don't know you as their Lord and Savior. God, may you just um, show them their need for you. Father, may, their, may your spirit just be convicting them of sin, Lord, and, and may you draw near to them. God, we love you and thank you for this time. pray all these things in your name. Amen.